You're listening to the Radio Cafe Science Edition. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. In a few minutes, you're going to hear a conversation with science writer Mary Ellen Hannibal, who's written a terrific new book called Citizen Scientist, Searching for Heroes and Hope in an Age of Extinction. I talked to her in a previous program some years back about her book, The Spine of the Continent, which is about the field of conservation biology. And I think both books bring to light the importance of two qualities that might seem to have kind of an uneasy relationship with one another in science. One is objectivity, which speaks to an ideal of observation without emotion or bias, kind of like the Vulcans in Star Trek. And the other quality is a very deep and passionate commitment to preserving the natural world in this time when it is so very threatened, and that threat extends to our own species. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of scientists today, a combination of those two different qualities, and that's what Mary Ellen Hannibal writes about. She's a wonderful writer, and she has a flair for making scientific concepts easily comprehensible to non-scientists. And she herself, as you will hear, has made the commitment to being a citizen scientist. And she lets the rest of us know how we can participate in our own ways. And I'll be putting up some links that speak to that on scienceradiocafe.org. So let's go now to Mary Ellen Hannibal. Welcome to the Radio Cafe. Thank you, Mary Charlotte. I'm really happy to be talking with you. It's great to be talking with you. Citizen scientist, what does that term actually mean? Such a good question. So in the very most general terms, a citizen scientist is an uncredentialed person, someone without a PhD, who is contributing to scientific research. But it can also be a PhD scientist who is contributing outside of their professional area of expertise. And in the whole realm of citizen science, there's a number of different categories. I'll just mention one more, which is co-creation. This is a category of citizen science that's sometimes called extreme citizen science. And that's focused on basically indigenous cultures and also on underserved communities, where the focus is on having the question that's to be addressed come from basically the people themselves. And then the scientists involved co-create a project where the scientists answer a question that they're interested in, at the same time helping a community of people answer their own questions. And and this is um, another kind of way of looking at citizen science. Which is so important because when you think about science or when you think about journalism or anything that's trying to get at the truth, it's always a matter of what is the question in the first place that we're trying to address. You're absolutely right. There couldn't be anything more critical than that fact. And one of the most positive things that I see on the whole horizon of conservation in general, you know, and I'm really focused on biodiversity and ecosystem functioning, extinction on the the world of biology Some citizen science projects are focused on other things, like on the night sky. But one of the most important things is this idea of really serving the needs of the community. You open the book by pointing out the contradiction that I think most of us are living with, namely that in the course of living our ordinary American lives and creating things like families and work and dinner and things like that, we're also not only creating, but destroying. What do you mean by that? Well, it's such a, you know, it's such a difficult thing 
but you know, we get in our cars, we have to get in our cars and go to our job. We have to come home, <laughs> stop at the grocery store, buy something to eat. A lot of the supply chains and the impacts of those ways that we have of doing things are really vastly overtaking what the earth has to offer. So of course we know all about the paradox of, of using fossil fuels to live our lives when this is you know, a very limited resource to begin with and also creating collateral damage in the atmosphere. Then of course, you know, we have our food choices, but sometimes it doesn't really feel like we have choices about what we buy and the way that an agriculture is conducted is also destructive to the environment. But we feel, I mean, I feel that we all feel this way, who are attuned to this, a little bit helpless. I mean, what are we going to do? We try, try to make choices. I try to not use plastic, but then I find myself using it. You know, I, I'll ask for a glass of water at a restaurant and they give me a glass with a plastic straw in it. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't want that plastic straw. And it just seems almost inescapable that, you know, the way that we have built up our lives is using natural resources in a way that's destructive to the rest of life forms. So we are losing biodiversity at a terrible rate. We are in a sixth mass extinction with plants and animals blinking out at the rate and magnitude that took out the dinosaurs. But even perhaps even worse than that is, is this biotic hemorrhaging of bodies of wild animals and plants that we're losing as we transform wilderness and, and open spaces for human purposes, like agriculture and like buildings and roadways. Now, the great thing about citizen science is it gives us a way to focus in local areas to actually quantify what's going on in a local area by really counting up species that we see there or by making daily or weekly or even monthly observations of things like blooming times of plants, hibernation and migration of animals, where we can try to see and locate where are the pinch points for nature. And then we can make some interventions once we know that there's a problem. So citizen science puts some measure of power into each of our hands to help create a picture of the deeper truth of what's going on so that we can make better decisions about how to go forward. And it's not about not developing at all. It's not about not having agriculture at all, but it's about how we do it, where we do it, when we do it, and doing those things, keeping other processes in mind, keeping other plants and animals in mind, keeping you know the water flows and the health of the soil in mind, and doing things mindfully that it's not just about human consumption, it's also about these other life forms that we need to support. And scientists themselves are very aware of that, and it puts them in an interesting position of not only observing the natural world and explaining what makes it tick, but also really actively trying to conserve it in the ways that you're talking about from the worst human impacts. Is that something that the scientific community is embracing? I know you, you know, different scientists feel differently about that. Well, you know, since my previous book, which you know, called The Spine of the Continent, and that's really about the science of conservation biology. So conservation means to save, 
you know, biology means the science, you know, the knowledge of life. So conservation biology is a, a branch of science that is focused on actually saving biodiversity. So certainly every single conservation biologist out there is focused on that and on figuring out what uh, what do species need where, what patterns are going on, and then advising state, local, regional, and even federal agencies about how to protect natural resources. Now, one thing that I've learned along the way is that scientists know an awful lot about what's going on, but the rest of us don't. And so there's this vast disconnect between what scientists do know and how the what they know could be applied all over the place because all over the place is where it needs to be applied and this is another really great thing about citizen science which is that it's a platform for increasing this connection between what we know is going on or what we uncover for ourselves what is going on in nature and then connecting that to a conservation outcome so I'll just give you an example of um, a citizen science project that I write about in my book, Citizen Scientist, is a monitoring project with the California Academy of Sciences. And I've, we first started going out to monitor these tide pools in Half Moon Bay in 2012 and chose two sites to monitor. So we monitor them regularly. And those sites were chosen because there was a huge diversity of sea stars in them. So sea stars are formerly known as starfish. You can still call them that because plenty of scientists do. But they're not fish. They're actually animals called echinoderms. And these sites had abundance of sea stars in them in June 2012. One plot we monitored had more than 70 sea stars in it. By August of 2012, they were all gone. They were completely, completely gone. And since then, we understand we are in what is the biggest marine die-off known to human history. All up and down the entire coast of North America, we have this massive sea star wasting syndrome going on. Now, there's lots and lots of monitoring of the coastline by professionals and amateurs. And it's actually, it's kind of getting to a wonderful critical mass of really integrating those databases. And it's a good moment to say that really citizen science is a partnership between regular people and professionals. It's something that is really effective when there's that partnership. But based on that kind of monitoring, we have created more marine protected areas in the Bay Area and in California than than anywhere else in the world. So that's a direct outcome of citizens participating in monitoring, seeing with their own eyes what's going on, and then go into the relevant meetings and hearings and saying, yes, let's protect this area. It needs protection. And, you know, officials are not going to protect spaces and wildlife or anything unless there's a public pressure to do so. So this is a huge connection that citizen science helps us make. It's really interesting because when citizens get involved in citizen science, I mean, you're out there in the tide pools counting starfish or counting other species. So they are involved. Then you, as a storyteller, as a journalist, are involved by spreading the stories out there. Citizens are involved in, you know, not only data collection, but even data entry. Now, the tricky part seems to be that citizens are amateurs, enthusiastic amateurs, but 
they can make mistakes. Are they making mistakes that would invalidate some of the work? How is that controlled? Well, you know, that's the most frequently asked question about citizen science. And it's also sort of a reflexive answer, like, oh, that couldn't be real science if regular people are doing it. In fact, there's been quite a number of studies that have tested and analyzed the efficacy of citizen science, citizen collected data versus professionally collected data. And, and to a one, those studies show that citizen collected data is uh, just as effective and just as accurate as professionally collected data. And that's really because of the protocols that are set up for collecting the data. And here is also the incredible advantage that we have today of smartphone technology and technology in general. So one of my favorite citizen science platforms is called iNaturalist. Now that's free, it's online, you can sign up for it um, through your phone or on your computer. I suggest doing it on a desktop first and then putting the app on your phone. Now, when we go out to the tide pools or I do a number of other citizen science projects, some of which don't use the smartphone, by the way, if you don't like smartphones and you don't like technology, there's other ways for you to be involved that are just as important. But it, this, this smartphone technology really increases the ability of citizen science to scale to the necessary level. So what we do with, this, with the iNaturalist is I take a photograph of a, of a species, a, a shorebird or a mollusk, and the app takes the photograph and it assigns that observation, the date, the time, the latitude and the longitude in which it was taken. Now this is the really the heart of citizen science the exact location of where and when you see a particular instance of life. This kind of observation is the kind of observation that Charles Darwin made, that Alfred Russell Wallace made when they were figuring out evolution by way of natural selection. And the big question is, how do life forms come to be where we find them? And how are those patterns changing? What are the forces that are making them change? And you know, they didn't have any idea that we would be facing this extinction crisis when they were coming up with their ideas in the 1800s. But it's the date, the time, the latitude and the longitude that the phone gives that observation that is so critical and that you don't make that mistake. You are not going to make the geolocation mistake because the phone is doing it by way of GPS. Now, that observation, that photo observation on iNaturalist goes up onto something like a Facebook feed that is in use and being looked at all over the world by experts and amateurs. And there's a mob sourced process for making an uh, accurate identification of what that species is. So let's say I get a good picture of, of a shorebird and I have an idea that maybe that's a snowy plover. So I might put in snowy plover and an ornithologist looking at that might say, you know, snowy plovers are not in Northern California at that time of year. So I think you're probably wrong. I think it's probably an X, some other species. And then a number of other ornithologists will, will pipe in. And then they can also look at iNaturalist and see what other observations of that particular bird, that species of bird were taken at the same time in about the same place. And then there's sort of this mob sourced agreement that yes, that is a snowy plover or it's something else. And then when that agreement gets made, then that 
observation with that metadata and the metadata is the date, the time, the latitude, the longitude, the photograph that gets uploaded to a database that's in use by scientists and natural resource managers all over the world. And so the heart of this is that we want this kind of Fitbit of getting this biotic pulse of biodiversity all over the world in real time. This is our goal. But there's no, there's no mistake to be made because the app gives you the foundation. So you're not put in the position of having to differentiate among four different kinds of small worms or something like that? No, you would never. I mean, you could try to do it, but other people are going to look at that and say, uh, no, you're wrong. And experts, you know, in these fields are very avidly looking at iNaturalist. And it's really interesting. I had a conversation last week with with Greg Pauly, who's a herpetologist at the Los Angeles Museum of Natural History. And he was telling me how he thinks that iNaturalist and citizen science is going to revolutionize our knowledge of biodiversity of, of biology in the same way that molecular work in the 1970s revolutionized it. And this is why he said, with all those eyes on the ground, we're getting observations of species that are rare and of biological interactions between species that are hard to see. So he told me about a lizard where he has more than 100 observations that regular people have made of this lizard mating. Now, breeding behavior of reptiles and amphibians is a very important piece of information when you're trying to conserve them. Now, he says, I have seen more photographs of this than any other living person, <laughs> but I have absolutely never seen this with my own eyes out in the world. And this is his point, is that there are when you have so many eyes out there, you're going to capture data that it would not be possible for one scientist out there to find. Right. So it's really, it's very positive. It's amazingly wonderful. And there's some people who are real... I mean, I don't know if you want to use the word fanatics, but they're, they're people who really are incredible observers. They're not scientists, and they're seeing things. I mean, you describe one woman who saw a kind of hawk and kept reporting it, and scientists didn't believe it, and it turned out she was right, because she's out there in a way that, you know, academics can't always be. Exactly. You know, and these, this is the thing about, about the sense of place that is this beautiful dimension of citizen science. So if you're a person who loves to hike on your mountain or on your shoreline or in your city park, and you love to do it all the time, if you start to tune in to what you're seeing and observing and make those observations, you will start to see patterns. You, you will. And you will also start to see where something in the pattern might change and you might have a question about that. And the, the world of citizen science is full of people making observations that were unexpected by scientists. Now, Greg Pauly at the Los Angeles Museum of Natural History runs a project called Rascals, Reptiles and Amphibians of Southern California. And this is back to the question of the data quality. When someone posts something on iNaturalist that is a lizard or a frog or something that he thinks is not likely to be there where it was observed, he will go out and check it out. He will go see for himself. And the thing is that with global change underway, with climate change and this massive conversion of habitat, we're seeing disruptions of those normal patterns, what we call normal or have understood as the regular patterns of plants and animals. So it is likely actually that, that patterns are changing. 
So that's a big question. And so he'll go out and check that out himself. And he'll also tell you that as a PhD herpetologist, even if he had a staff of 20 PhDs working for him, he would still have to have the same degree of quality control over their data collection. Data collection is something you have to pay a lot of attention to. It's kind of like your diet. You know, you have to be careful and mindful all the time, no matter whether you're a professional or an amateur. And this is an important point, actually. Anybody, you know, interested in becoming a citizen scientist and in being an observer of your habitat yourself, use a platform that already exists. Use iNaturalist. Use eBird if you're a birder. You can go to the, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. has a whole suite of different kinds of projects for you to contribute to. And these places, Cornell, iNaturalist, another favorite of mine is called Nature's Notebook. And that is a project of the National Phenology Network, which tracks the timing of nature's events, especially when the first leaf out of green is in the spring. And that first leaf out of green in the spring, by the way, is our biggest signal of the effect of climate change on the biotic world. So it's a very, very fundamental thing to monitor. But if you use those projects, then your data is going into a highly vetted, cared for, tended over, obsessed over database maintained by universities, natural history museums, the government. And those are the databases you want to contribute to. So you might, you know, have your own little frog project in your own backyard. But if you don't put that data on something like iNaturalist, then other people can't use it. And this is the beauty of, of iNaturalist, for example, that that one Los Angeles and Southern California project about reptiles and amphibians, that's already looking at a very big regional area. But that whole area is just a small area compared to, you know, the continental United States or the whole North American continent or the whole Western Hemisphere. But the way that we have to understand how patterns in nature are changing are on those gigantic scales. So someone trying to figure out how are reptiles and amphibians doing everywhere needs to have data from local sources as well. So this is the thing that citizen science also does is it scales the local to the regional, basically to the global. Right. And that's powerful. It seems like it's very exciting work. It's very powerful work, as you say. It's also heartbreaking work, or can be. I mean, you describe a species of bird in California that was dying off in such great numbers that bodies were literally falling from the sky. And... I mean, the death of the sea stars and so many different kinds of death. Scientists maybe have shielded themselves from the emotion of that, maybe not. But for ordinary citizens, it must be, I mean, you're, you're signing up for some pain. Well, you know, I think, Mary Charlotte, if you're an awake person, you're already feeling pain. Yeah. You know, it, we're, we're seeing an unfolding tragedy, but it is not something that we are helpless to address. We are not helpless to address it. So when I go out as a citizen scientist in the tide pool where I'm looking for those sea stars, I'm looking to see where there's some juveniles recruiting. Are they going to succumb to the sea star wasting or are they going to thrive? It's a question. They could possibly come back. But I'm also looking at incredible other life forms that are still there 
and shifting, you know, we, we see this, uh, these nudibranchs in the California coast. These are these incredibly psychedelic sea slugs. They're just incredibly beautiful. They're beguiling. And, and they're, they're there and they change their patterns, the, the patterns of which species are when in the tide pool change. So there's also this incredible acknowledgement of the life that is there. And that when you make an observation and upload that observation, give it to a bigger database, you are essentially giving that species a big endorsement. You are supporting that species in its life. So it is, yes, we have to confront the sorrow of what's going on here on this earth, but it's not over. It is not over. And we need more and more people to be participating in supporting biodiversity and this is the way to do it so there's a tremendous amount of joy i mean just being outside number one is fun and it's great and it's good for you you know you use your your powers of observation when you're looking for things in a way that you don't ordinarily use you know you can go on a hike right and not be doing iNaturalist or not be doing any eBird and and you might really be enjoying yourself, but when you start looking, where am I seeing a bird? Where am I seeing a wildflower? Where am I seeing a tree even? Um, you start to, to tune in with more of your senses and participate more in the living world. And there's a sheer joy to that. It is, it is absolutely joyful. How much of a commitment is it? I mean, when you decide that you're going to let's say you like to look at birds, but you're not really a hardcore birder, can you still get involved? Yes, you absolutely can. There's, there's all kinds of different levels of involvement. You know, one of the citizen science projects I do is the Golden Gate Raptor Observatory. It's a hawk watching uh, monitoring program. And there's like 330 volunteers, something like that. And between the middle of August and the middle of November every year, we have make a commitment that one full day out of every two weeks, we will spend that whole day on Hawk Hill counting hawks. And to be a Hawk Watch volunteer, you sign up for trainings and continual education, essentially. There's a continuous education process and there's a commitment. And if you miss too many of your days, you're out. Now, other things like using iNaturalist, you know, you're not, you don't need to make any commitment to that. You can do it a lot this week and none next week. But I would say for me that I've gotten the most out of the ones that actually require a regular commitment because that's where going out even, I've done the Hawk Watch for five years, I guess five or six years. And so over that period of time, I've learned so much about Hawks and seeing Hawks and their behavior. And I've also registered different things about the experience of watching them. So I've, I've really gotten so much out of that regular commitment of going there. It's a practice. Yeah. It's like any kind of practice you might have, like a spiritual practice or a yoga practice or a workout routine that you do at your gym. It's very deepening to make a commitment. But you actually can experiment with a lot of different kinds of citizen science. I think that the best thing to do to find a project is to just Google your area where you live and put in citizen science because a lot will come up. There's a website called SciStarter, so it's SCISTarter.org, and that has a listing of all kinds of citizen science projects around the country and probably some global ones. 
So there are, you know, global and continental citizen science projects you can do wherever you are. And then there are local ones you can join. And you can also start your own project using iNaturalist. You can create a project on iNaturalist. And, you know, if you're a regular person, maybe I would team up with a natural resource manager, someone who works for the state parks or a regional park, or maybe a science teacher, someone that might really be able to add to what you're doing. You don't have to have a question or you can have a question. Uh, maybe you want to monitor a certain kind of tree and, and just start noticing what goes on with that tree year in and year out. And actually that sounds boring, but it's incredibly dramatic depending on the species of tree. Right. So it's really can be a lot of fun. And for you, there's a lot of different kinds of rewards, including the fact that you got to actually hold a hawk and you describe that in your book. And moments like that are very moving. Yeah. You know, that was a transcendent moment. I personally feel kind of ambivalent. Part of what the Golden Gate Raptor Observatory does is band birds. So we get the birds and we put a band on their leg. And then this banding, bird banding program, and there's all kinds of bird banding programs all over the world, it really helps science understand where birds go. Because eventually that bird will die somewhere and someone might pick that bird up and it will have this band on it. And there's a centralized database of all those banding numbers. And so that bird can be identified. And this is part of how we understand the patterns of animal movement. It's kind of analogous to putting a radio collar on a grizzly bear and, or a coyote and keeping track of where that animal goes. It's how we try to understand where do they go. I personally, I am so glad that I had that experience. I, I banded a bunch of birds the first bird uh, that I banded was a big juvenile red tail female. This was just the most magnificent creature I've ever been that close to. And it was amazing to hold her because, you know, this is a hawk, right? <laughs> These are gangster birds, but they don't really, you know, she's not going to try to hurt me. Although she did, um, I, I slipped my hold on her and she put her claws on my two small fingers on my left hand and started to squeeze, right? And that's how she does kill things, right? She squeezes them. And uh, I had to be rescued by my day leader that day who just simply was a big strong man with tons and tons of experience and he released my fingers from her grip. But you can actually hold this animal that will tolerate you for a minute. She wants to get back into the air. So letting her go and do that, you know, it did feel to me like this is what I'm doing here. I'm helping this creature along her life. Not only her life, but I'm honoring all the hawks that came before her and all the hawks that will come after her. And this is another thing about citizen science is that, you know, the, the moment in time that you have, the observation you make becomes a point, a data point when you make it with these databases. And that data point is super significant in creating a pattern of what we see right now. But think about all the generations of these species that have come before. Some of them hundreds of thousands of years of generations of species have come before this one that you are observing. So you're holding the present in place, but you're also referring back to the past. And because you're helping these species in the moment, you're also helping the future generations. So there's a profound way that citizen science can help you reflect on your own place in the life cycle. 
and see the importance of the present in terms of the past and the future. Yeah, very interesting. There's so much history in your book, and you go back to past citizen scientists, including people like Thomas Jefferson, and you also go back to the indigenous people of California. And I think there's kind of a a myth that indigenous people lived lightly on the earth and made little or no impact. But in fact, in California, as you write about, native people were really very, I don't know if you want to call it scientifically aware, but they were doing things like controlled burns. They were masterful land managers. Describe that for us and what happened when the Spanish arrived. So thank you for bringing that up. You know, when I was writing this book, that was one of the experiences that I had in finding out about California Indians that really was just a mind blower for me. So I mentioned at the outset this category of citizen science called co-creation. And I was looking for a story to talk about that. And the one that I found that was, you know, and another reason why there's a lot of history and and I stay a lot in California, but I also go around the world and also around the country. But citizen science is also about being where you are and understanding where you are better. So for me, I live in the Bay Area, so I wanted to understand that better. So I found this project of PhD archaeologists who are working with Amamuts and tribal people in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And the archaeologists have been studying for, I think, probably 15 years now, the, uh, the practices of the native Californians historically on the land. And in particular, they're looking to know how long did Indians burn the landscape, how, how far back into the past. And that's a whole huge subject. It's a worldwide subject. Indigenous cultures, you know, in Australia still burn the landscape. But yeah, there's been this kind of idea that the Native Americans were kind of simple hunter-gatherers. And the California Indian story is is a very singular story because they were hunter-gatherers to a degree, but then they were also cultivators of the wild. There's a wonderful book called Tending the Wild by M. Cat Anderson that is all about this. And the way that the California Indians managed the landscape, they actually increased the number of wild species that they coexisted with. So they, they did not domesticate those animals and plants the way that we domesticate animals and plants for our own agriculture, but they managed in a natural way that was in alignment with old cycles of seasons and lightning strikes and so forth. So the Amamutsan people wanted to know from the archaeologists, they said, yes, we'll help you figure out how long our people burned the landscape. We want to uncover our cultural history. We want to relearn our cultural history because it's been lost to us. So the California Indians had a a particularly bad story. I mean, all Native American tribes have a bad story, but the California Indians had a really disastrous, quick and destructive story that happened here. And that was the the Spanish colonialists, Portola, Gaspar de Portola and Junipero Serra at the behest of the Spanish crown came and made first contact with the California Indians in 1769 in the Santa Cruz Mountains. The natives there had been burning the landscape for probably thousands of years and cultivating wildlife. So the Spanish came and quickly stopped that. They stopped the burning. 
they also started to eventually they killed all the grizzly bears and all the wolves that were on the landscape. And as you know from my book, The Spine of the Continent, those grizzly bears and wolves also, along with fire, have a biotic impact on how nature works. So when you take those processes out of nature, you actually make nature simpler and not as effective. So all of these things are quickly removed. All these processes are quickly removed from the landscape and it went into a, a serious decline. So the Spanish inserted cattle grazing onto the landscape as a way to make a living, as a way to, to provide land that would have some way for people to come and settle it. The idea was to have people come and settle this landscape, even though there already were people on it. So the, the fascinating thing today is that those California Native Americans knew something about coexisting with nature that we don't know anymore. We have lost that cultural knowledge too. And in this world, this is, can be called sometimes traditional ecological knowledge. And you know, we're never gonna go back to living the way that the indigenous people lived here. We have too many people on the planet for one thing, but we can learn a lot about how, going back to your original question, how do we go through the day without destroying while we're creating? How do we co-create? so that it's a, a win-win as we are harvesting natural resources for our food and our clothing. How can we do that in a way that actually sustains wild populations instead of depleting them? You know, and then these, these Amamutsan people are connecting emotionally and to their ancestors and to really healing and uh, reestablishing ties to the land itself that have been lost for a couple of hundred years and the PhD scientists are actually helping them do it. It's just a beautiful project. Yeah. And the role of fire on landscape, as we know here in New Mexico, for example, from forests that have, where fire suppression has been going on for too long, and then you get these catastrophic fires, whereas if you let naturally occurring fires burn naturally, you'd have a healthier forest. The same thing went on on other kinds of land in California, too. Exactly. And, you know, we're stuck right now. It's, it's hard for us to allow fire to exist. I mean, because we have so much human buildings. Yeah. And also because the fire has been suppressed, a lot of the fires will burn very hot. There's disagreement of, over whether those super hot fires are bad or not. But um, they certainly, once you have those conflagrations, there's a very long period of time before the forest comes back. In California, we have, oh my gosh, I'm not going to remember the number of dead trees we have on the landscape. It is shocking. I mean, I think it's something like 60 million dead trees. Those trees are standing there dead. They're being decomposed by beetles. And some of them will burn and some of them won't. But because of the shift, because of anthropogenically caused climate change, there's not enough water in the system for those forests to regenerate. So the landscape will change um, and a different kind of species will succeed the forest, but it probably will not be the forest. So we're watching changes unfold that are inevitable now. Things are changing. We're not gonna go back to anything that was, but the question is how can we co-create a healthy landscape you know, and, and help help new species come and be where they want to be in a way that is vibrant and useful 
and, and good for species and good for people all at the same time. Another piece of the book that is very important is a piece of math that describes the energy of the sun. That energy of the sun is converted by photosynthesis into plant life that covers the earth. Then the creatures who eat those plants use that energy for their own lives, including us. Then decomposing life returns to the earth and makes layers of soil and deeper than soil layers of oil and coal, fossil fuels. Now, we have gotten to this very weird and very kind of distorted place right now in terms of that math. Can you lay that out for us? Well, thank you for that, Mary Charlotte. It definitely, this, what's going on connects really, you know, we hear a lot about climate change and global warming, and we hear a lot about the negative impacts of burning fossil fuels that increases that global greenhouse effect. And then I'm also telling you this sad story, this bad story of extinction and loss of uh, populations of wildlife. So there is this energy cycle. This is how the world works. Um, The sun provides a certain amount, a huge amount of energy every day, and a certain amount of it is purposed for photosynthesis by plants. Now, it should be said that when we can get better use of solar energy, there's a lot more sun energy available that we just aren't using yet. But we will be using it, and we're trying to use it more and more. And it just comes naturally from the sun. So at the moment, though, you know, here we get the certain amount of energy from the sun that the plants photosynthesize. And then the, the small animals, like the insects, the reptiles, amphibians, and small birds, they convert a certain amount of that energy by eating the plants, and we also eat the plants. Then there's a certain amount of energy lost in that transaction. And then we go up the food chain so that by the time we are eating the energy of the sun, there's there's a cycle that all works together. Now, we have so many people on the earth today that we are actually using up more energy every day then is converted daily by the sun, using the sun's energy. And the way we are doing that is by digging up those fossil fuels. That's the photosynthesis of yesterday. So in the, in the dark, deep past, when plants and animals died, their remains decomposed and became, over time, you know, compressed and made into oil and gas, basically. So now we're using up the photosynthesis of yesterday to fuel the amount of people that we have on the on the earth today. So we are overusing, we are we are drawing down our bank account every day. So it's kind of like it's equivalent to using up the water in the aquifer faster yes. than the rain is recharging that aquifer. So eventually you're not going to have any water in the well and you're going to be relying on sparse rainwater essentially. Exactly. And also because of the way that we are using the fossil fuels, we're, we're speeding the destructive cycle of, of heating up the atmosphere and creating all these other problems at the same time. Now, I, I'm really pretty confident we will get onto solar and wind. And basically, wind energy is also essentially powered by the sun because it's, it's powered by wind that is instigated by cycles of the sun. So we will get on that and we will stop using the fossil fuels. 
the trouble is we really need to stop using the fossil fuels sooner, you know, really fast because because of the heating effect into the atmosphere and what it's doing to sea level rise and ocean acidification and all that kind of stuff. And the time to stop was probably about 10 years ago, and we don't know right now how many tipping points we've already hit or are about to hit. And I guess there's some disagreement about this, even in the scientific community. I find this whole tipping point science extremely interesting. It's something that is projecting into the future. And whenever you do that, nobody knows what's going to happen. But you do have to kind of try to figure that out, right? Like you have kids that are going to go to college, maybe, and you got to try to figure out, are we going to have enough money to send them to college? And we have to make plans now so that we can adapt and do the right thing when that time comes. So that's what we're trying to do with this tipping point science is say, you know, what are the stresses on the natural landscape and seascape and where could those stresses really break the system? And because humans have an impact everywhere on the earth now, there's no place on earth that is exempt from human impacts. What one system, what breaks in one system could have a huge impact on another system. And, you know, you see that actually, it's interesting. Um, I was off the coast of Maine about a year ago on a birding trip, and there were a lot of bald eagles around. And I was on a boat with a scientist, and I'm like, oh, my God, I've never seen so many bald eagles. They're so beautiful. And the scientist kind of winced. And he said, well, there's a lot of bald eagles here now. And he said, they've driven out the blue herons. So and he, his thought was that, you know, we've overfished the waters off the coast of Maine. So there's literally no big fish left in the waters off the coast of Maine. And as the scientist explained it, he said, now, eagles are omnivores, and they used to here eat at least half their diet from the water. But now there's no big enough fish to make it worth an eagle's time to go catch it. So they are predating more on other birds. Oh my so you God. see how we break the system in the water, and then it has this impact on the birds. And then if the birds move, if then, you know, you get the blue herons moving out of the area, you know, that changes the the relationship of the ecology on that landscape as well. So everything is connected, right? And that's what's so overwhelming about our problems today. But it's also where when you make an observation about how many bald eagles you see that day, it can help scientists say, you know, we're seeing a pattern here and we have to actually change the fishing laws <laughs> if we want to, like, try to keep some kind of balance. The book Citizen Scientist is a wonderful book, and it's very poignant, I think, for the reader because you interweave the story of witnessing science and the extinction of species and, and citizen science with the death of your father, who died as you were writing the book. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how your father's passing made you think differently about the work you were doing, if it did. Well, it did. I mean, he gave me a tremendous gift in the way that he died. I had written um, a whole draft of the book when he got lung cancer, and he really died quickly of the lung cancer. So I went back to, um, I live in California, and my mother still lives back in East Hampton in New York. So when he started his radiation treatments for lung cancer, I went back to help her out. 
And the, the story from the doctors was he's strong as a horse. We're going to pummel him with radiation and he will get stronger. He will first, he will get weak and then he will get stronger. So every day I was there, he was getting weaker and weaker. But the story was always he's going to be good. It's all all right. At a certain point, we, we all realized without saying so that he was dying. Now, my father was a writer and he taught me to be a writer. And he taught me that the writer observes and he gave me a lot of notebooks over the years. He, um, he said, you know, take notes of your observations and then you'll see patterns in your notes and you'll tell stories from those patterns. That's what a writer does. And he did it his whole life and I've done it my whole life. And a couple of years ago, I took him up to Hawk Hill. This was well before he was sick and he was up there. It's the most beautiful spot. It's, if you ever visit San Francisco, go over to Hawk Hill in Sausalito because you can see the Bay Area from this like 360 degree view and you can see mountain ranges in every direction and the ocean and the bay and the city itself looks like sort of an incidental footnote. And so we're watching these birds fly by and we're calling out, you know, Peregrine over Slacker or Redtail over Elvis. We have all these nicknames for landmarks that we call the birds out. And the birds seem to come out of nowhere when you see them. You know, they come out of the sky and suddenly you see one and then you follow it with your binoculars until it disappears. So he's up there, you know, for hours with us doing this. And he says, so what you do here is you are watching an instance of life as it comes and goes. And I say, yeah, we are watching an instance of life as it comes and goes. And he said, that's spiritual. So I didn't really ask him what he meant by that at the time. But then when he was dying and he lost his ability to really talk as the cancer overwhelmed him, I noticed him observing me as I was observing him. And, you know, I'm observing him knowing he's dying and he's observing me knowing he's dying. And it struck me, I'm watching a life form come and go, come from this moment and go to what I don't know where. And so in subsequent years, I've been out on the hawk watch. And when I see those hawks go by, I think of my father coming and going. And, you know, the hawks that we see here on the West Coast on this particular migration are almost all fledgling year. They're, they're the juveniles. They're the, they're the teenagers. On the East Coast, there's a big hawk migration. And most of the birds they see there are two-year-old birds. They're adults. Nobody knows why. So it, my father gave me this tremendous gift of thinking about why is this spiritual to watch this bird, this juvenile bird on its journey. And then it really came to me that thousands and thousands of generations of hawks before these hawks have made it possible for this hawk. So it's really okay for that generation to go because it's brought this moment in time to its fruition. And now I have children who are fledgling, you know, they're going off into their own lives pretty soon. And I wonder what kind of world I'm sending them into or they're going into eagerly. And I want that world that they go into to be, as Darwin said, this unfolding of endless forms most beautiful. And this is what I felt and realized that seeing that hawk and helping that juvenile by observing it is a practice of understanding myself in the life cycle. And my father's death is what brought that revelation to me, for which I am grateful to him. And doing that and seeing oneself in this 
context of generation and regeneration is a beautiful thing, and then confronting extinction in that context, that is the thing I want to say to fight, you know, and that we, you know, as journalists, as citizen scientists, whatever, are working really hard to try to stop. Exactly, Mary Charlotte, you know, it's, there is a natural rate of extinction. There's something that scientists call a background rate of extinction. And I think it's something like, it's at least 200,000 years that a species normally has to live on Earth. We have been a species, by the way, not for, you know, something like 10,000 years, very little time in that scheme. But all these, the species that are online to go extinct are, are online to go extinct because of human causes and prematurely. And when they go extinct, they will never come again. It's the end of the line for those endless forms most beautiful. It's not endless anymore. It has an end. And that's not right. And we do need to fight that. It goes back to a really you know, fundamental sense of what we owe the creation that we're part of. And there's actually something I think that's very positive about even this disaster because it's made us aware. It's made us aware that we create meaning by our practice. And that meaning, you know, I want faith groups and people that have spiritual practices to get out there with iNaturalist. Don't just observe your own thoughts and don't just observe your own breath. Observe the biotic world because you are co-creating it. Mary Ellen Hannibal is author of the book Citizen Scientist Searching for Heroes and Hope in an Age of Extinction. And what we're going to do at scienceradiocafe.org is link to Mary Ellen's website where there are many links to websites where people can go to get involved as citizen scientists themselves or find out more about it. Mary Ellen, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Mary Charlotte. It's really fun to talk with you. Likewise. You've been listening to the Radio Cafe Science Edition. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. And if you're listening and you think that you might want to be a citizen scientist yourself, you can go to Mary Ellen Hannibal's website, maryellenhannibal.com, and you can find a link to that on my website, scienceradiocafe.org. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for the show, please email me at mc at radiocafe.media and check out our website at scienceradiocafe.org. And we are on Twitter at Radio Cafe MC and on Facebook.com slash Radio Cafe. I would like to thank Steady Networks, providing managed IT services and computer support for thousands of people in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. You can find out more about them at SteadyNetworks.com. And I've been working with them for years, and they're great at what they do, and they're great public media supporters. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.